We've been speaking over the past uh, few weeks, and uh, the last couple of weeks we took a little break for the Thanksgiving holiday. But I want to go back. I just can't get over this series right now, and I hopefully this will be the last review wrap-up of the series that we've been talking about, about Satan and his strategies for us. Uh, he has some very detailed strategies, some very thought-out plans for you and for me. And the more that we understand what those plans are and what those strategies are, the better off we are, the better able we are to protect ourselves and our life. So we wanna, I want to just kind of wrap it up today, I hope, on this topic. And, uh, and uh, it's important to know um, right now, it's important to know at the beginning of this that Satan is still at work even in a life of a Christian. You know, the Sunday school class this morning kind of was just dovetailed right into this. I, I, it's just amazing how that works. I didn't look at the le- lesson. I, I didn't have any idea what they were going to be talking about, but it so much pertains to what we're going to talk about today. And that um, Satan's plan in the life of a Christian really works very much along our personality lines and our predisposition to Bible. He's, uh, he's a pretty smart adversary. And uh, he does not want to see, he does not want us to see him as he is. Because if we really saw Satan for what he was, we would never even think twice about doing anything he told us to do. If we could really see his ugliness and his level of depravity and his sin and his grotesqueness and just the evil that he really is, we wouldn't even think twice about listening to a thought that he would plant in our heart or in our mind. So Satan comes to us in a very uh, creative way. He conceals himself to us a lot of times based upon our personality because my personality is different than yours. My predisposition to the word is different than yours. My background is different than yours. So Satan doesn't come to us in all the same way. He comes to us differently based upon who I am and who you are. So he brings his personality, lines it up kind of with our weaknesses. And he attacks us in our weaknesses and not in our strengths. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, a good, a good strategist, a good war strategist would never attack on the enemy's strong points. He would always pick the weak points, and he would focus on that. And that's how he would get in to defeat the, 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 uh, the war that he's in, is that he would always look for the weak points. And that's exactly what Satan does. And so he knows us very well. He knows our personality. And he knows our level of Bible teaching or lack of. And he'll hit us at our weak points because he's a very smart adversary. I want to talk about two specific strategies, though, that happens to the mind of a Christian when it comes to Satan's continuing influence in our life. And I know that some struggle with this and that does he really have an influence in a Christian's life? Can the enemy really oppress a Christian? Can he really influence a Christian? And whatever position the enemy takes, he becomes very compulsive and very extreme in that position. 
and the true biblical perspective of living life is the life of balance. God is not a God of extremism. He's not a God of confusion either. He's a God of balance. He's a God of very, uh, a lot of uh, uh, coordinated efforts. But the enemy quite often will go to the extreme in our life on one way or another. Extremes really in all things in life are bad. Food is good to have. I need to eat. But if I eat excessively, what happens to me? Anything good taken to an extreme can become bad. And that's very uh, strategic of the enemy. He takes a lot of things to an extreme and makes them bad. For example, I want to talk about two, two specific areas this morning where the devil works in our life. Number one, he gives the Christian an appearance. One way to do it is that he gives the, the, the Christian an appearance of total non-existence in the Christian's life. And he gives the opinion to the believer that he is untouchable. That because I'm saved, because I'm born again, because I'm in the process of sanctification, that I am untouchable by the enemy. That the devil is giving up on me because I am such a good person, because I am so far down the road to Christianity, the devil's giving up on me. And the devil will play that strategy with you if that's the strategy that's going to work for you. He doesn't care how he gets you to sin as long as ultimately he gets you to sin. So he can, that's one extreme that he can bring. And in this, uh, this false, really, teaching of false security, because that's really what it becomes. It's a false sense of security and power that I have over the enemy because the enemy is giving up because I'm so mature. I've been a Christian so long, the enemy just doesn't have a play in my life anymore. We talked about that in the Sunday school class a little bit. And what, what happens here, what happens in this situation is that it weakens our resistance because we then let our spiritual guard down because we think that we're not touchable by the enemy. It weakens our need to stay vigilant in the word and strong in our prayer life. And in all respects, we become very vulnerable to, to his attacks over time. And I'm reminded in this by an example of uh, when I was a young boy, we grew up in a farm. And uh, I can remember Saturday nights were always bath nights. Whether I needed it or not, Mom and Dad would have get our, take a bath and uh, watch Lawrence Welk and Flipper. And Dad would peel um, apples and cut us apple slices and toss us apples when we were in our pajamas after we'd been all cleaned from our bath. And that's a very vivid remembrance of me as a young man in the farm. But, you know, when I'm thinking about that, that moment that I took the bath, I was pretty clean. But, you know, I wasn't long before Sunday came and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And by the time next Saturday came again, you know what? I needed another bath. Whether I admitted it or liked it or not, I had one bath a week. I needed at least that. But yet, the moment that I took the bath, I was clean. And that reminded me of sometimes of my sin. The moment that I ask Christ to forgive me, I'm clean. I am forgiven. Uh, there is no sin left in my life at that moment. But you know what? The cares of life come. I don't care how good of a Christian I am. The cares of life come. And here's what's interesting that I thought about this too, is that if I even 
physically took a bath and am clean and didn't do any labor or didn't play outside, if I just sat in this room for a week, I would develop body odor. You know where that comes from? It comes from within because I would sweat. And you know, this is <laughs> part of the way that we get rid of our waste is through our skin. We don't urinate everything away. Now, I know that's kind of gross, but that's reality. Our skin is a, is a big um, uh, vapor lock barrier, and a lot of the stuff that we waste comes out of our skin. A good example, if you want to know, eat a lot of garlic, and then see what happens in a couple days. And you can smell the garlic coming out of your body. So the sin in our life isn't always what I do in the world, but it's just naturally in me, it has to come out. Does that mean that we are always, uh, are we always struggling with our sin? No, I don't want to put you in the mindset that we're struggling with our sin. I just think it's important that we know that, that we have to have a regular regimen of, of health care and, and, and um, hygiene. I need to take a shower every day. I really do, um, and sometimes more than once a day. And spiritually, I need to take a bath every day. Spiritually, I need to get before the Lord every day and say, Lord, clean me today. Clean me out today. Clean me of my sin today. And you know what? That's good. You know what, that, you know what that's called? That's called relationship. We talked about religion and relationship. People that talk about religion talk about religion. People that talk about relationship experience the relationship of Christ. And with that comes a cleansing, a regular daily cleansing. And that is living the Christian life. That's it. Right there. That's living it. The other extreme that the enemy takes, so the first extreme was that I become self-righteous, that I don't need it, I don't sin. Okay, that's the first extreme. And, and we were warned about that in First John in, in Sunday school class this morning for those that were there. The second extreme tactic that Satan uses is that we see him everywhere. That everything that we do, we see Satan. And we're so overwhelmed and so overly a conscience of his that every rock we turn over, we're turning over devils. And we can't do anything because we're afraid of the enemy. We're afraid of his power. We're afraid of his conquering us. We're afraid of him. That's his other extreme that Christians can get into. And you probably all know some of those, or maybe you're one, or maybe you've experienced that in your life at some time. But that's the other extremism. And what biblical response to this is, we need a healthy case of both. We need to be aware of the enemy's presence in our life, but we have to understand that he is not going to conquer us. So we have to have a healthy balance of daily living that lifestyle. And it is a fine line. The godly perspective of having a healthy combination of both extremes is very important because we must realize that the enemy does have us targeted. And here, especially the older you get, the more influence you have, the, more, the bigger the target is on your back. The more influential you are to your family, to your church, to your business, the bigger target you become. I know we don't like to talk about that, but that's the fact. 
so we understand then as we live a holy and we live an obedient, healthy Christian lifestyle that we are, we are on the side of the creator, not the side of the creation. And this is very important. What I mean by this is given to us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 19. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's talking about Jesus. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in all in him all things hold together. Man, he's really stressing the all things, isn't he? Maybe that's because he is the creator of all things. I don't know, but I'll, maybe I'll think about that. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have him. For God was pleased in this. All right. So God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit is the Creator, and my healthy respect of the Creator puts me on His side not the side of his fallen creation, who was the enemy. It's no surprise that God can, can, can defeat his creation. Why are we surprised by that? Why does that take us by surprise that God can create or can defeat his creation? There's no surprise in that. There's, there's never no, there was never a doubt that God was ever going to be defeated, that he would ever be defeated by his fallen creation. Never happened. So what I want to do as we wind this series of Satan strategies down is I want to hand out, if the, my lovely assistants would, please. I have some handouts that I want to hand out to every person, please, because this really is um, the review of everything we've talked about for about five or six weeks. And I want to, um, I want to talk about it, and I want, I want you to, every person to have one, if you would take one, please. And I would like you, if you would, to go home and read this, review it. And I would like you to open up your Bible and reference every Bible scripture that's referenced here. Now, we do preach a lot of Bible here, but one thing that I've been a little bit convicted on is that I, I, we put it up on the screen all the time. And that's nice. It makes it easy to preach with. It makes, it makes the service go faster. But what it doesn't do for you is get you into your Bible. And you need to get into your Bible. You need to open the pages. You need to hear the pages ruffle. You need to feel them in your fingers. You need to get a magic marker with you or a pen. And you need to highlight in your Bible what God's revealing to you in these scriptures. And uh, so I really would like it. I think it's really important that every person go home this week and, and go through what we're going to... I'm going to go through it right now with you in general, but I'm not going to read any scriptures because that's up to you to read those on your own. You know, a, um, a teacher would say any good teaching style is you listen and you don't really pick up a whole lot of what you listen. You learn a little bit more on what you read and you, read, you learn the most about what you write. So this is, um, I'm following my, some of my wife's advice, and that is that we need to give you homework. So it's all her fault. <laughs> the homework is up to Chris, okay? 
So I want to, let's just go through this. And let's understand. And so you make notes on this right now if you want to. But I really would hope that you would trust me in saying this, that you really need to go home and study this. This is not just mine. If you look at the bottom, um, I picked a lot of this information up from uh, Warren Worsby from a book, The Strategy of Satan, and also from Dennis McCallum, Satan and His Kingdom. And I've had a couple other books that I've referenced, and, of course, the Bible. So uh, this is just not my ideas. This is really good, solid biblical teaching. Who is Satan, and does he really exist? Satan is a fallen angel. He's evicted from heaven when pride entered his heart. That was the first sin. Pride became the first sin. There is no sin in heaven, so Satan had to be evicted. When pride entered his life, it was only a matter of time before God would throw him out. And that's exactly what happened. So Satan was a fallen angel. We talked about this. I'm going through everything we've talked about. You've all, this is all review. But Satan is a fallen angel. He was probably the best angel that God ever created. He was perfect in wisdom and beauty, the Bible says. He was something to behold. And that was, part of, that was part of his problem because he realized that. And that's where pride came because he said, I can be like God. And that same pride that Satan had gets into me because we're going to talk about it later about the ruler mentality of Satan because now that pride gets into my life and as Satan said, I can be like God, what do I think? I can be God in my life. So that pride that he had uh, comes directly into my life too and probably part of it into yours. So yes, Satan really exists. He is our mortal enemy. He is out to kill and out to devour all men. He is not your friend. He is nothing to play with. He is not a little guy in a red suit with a long tail and spiked horns and, and a pitchfork. That's a cartoon character, but that's not who the devil is. Like we said earlier today, if we really understood and saw who he was, we would have a whole different view of our relationship with the Lord. We are in a battle. We are in warfare. There's a lot of scriptures to back that up, and so you need to go back and read these scriptures. But I want to ask you a question this morning. If you don't think we're at war, why then are we instructed in Ephesians chapter 6 to put our battle armor on? If you read Ephesians chapter 6, we are instructed to put the armor of God on every day. Why would we do that if we're not at war? Rod, you're reading ahead. Oh. <laughs> why, why, would we, why would God instruct us to put on our battle armor? If we're not at war. Scott, you wear um, a lot of garb, don't you, under your uniform. Is it comfortable? No. In the hot, yeah, you get used to it, but in, but in the hot summer days, that's the last thing you want to wear. I, I see pictures of guys in Desert Storm that are dressed to the hilt. They've got armor, body armor on. They've got uniform on. They've got a helmet on. They've got big boots on. And it's 110 or 120 degrees or hotter in the deserts. And these guys have to wear their battle armor. Why? Because they're in war. All it takes is one bullet 
to get through when you took your hat off because you're sweating and you said, I don't need this helmet on. I don't need this thing on. I'm hot. All it takes is one time you take that armor off and the devil's got you in his sights. He's waiting for the time to pull the trigger. And boom, he's got you. Understand, Satan is always watching you. He's got his demons. A third of the demons, a third of the angels fell with him from heaven. And that's millions and millions and millions and I don't know how many untold demons there are that are roaming this world and they're watching Christians because that's that's what their role is. So he's just watching for the moment that I'm weak. He's got the gun sights on, and he's just waiting for the moment that I'm weak. He's waiting for the moment I took my helmet of salvation off, or my breastplate of righteousness off, or my belt of truth off, or I take off the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, or I lay down my my shield of faith, or or I put down my sword. He's just waiting for me for my weak point. And then, boom. That's why it's important that we keep the armor on all the time. It doesn't make any difference how new of a Christian you are or how old of a Christian you are. You must keep your battle armor on because we are in a war. All right, Satan's four main strategic purposes are to be, number one, the deceiver, number two, the destroyer, number three, the ruler, and number four, the accuser. Let's go through these. The deceiver. Satan is deceived... And he's a liar. In fact, he is the father of all lies. And his goal is to be the deceiver of all people so that they will spend their eternity in hell with him. That's his number one goal, to deceive and to destroy. Read the scriptures to go along with that. And a lot of times he spends his deception time in our mind. He attacks the mind. Now, why does he attack the mind? Because it's the thought center of our life. It's where we think. It's where we plan. It's where we purpose. It's where God speaks to us as well. So Satan's plan to attack the mind is to come in and try to disrupt God's leading in our life. He comes in to bring confusion. He comes in to bring distractions. He comes in to bring extremities and and the extremes of life. He comes in to bring all kinds of garbage He comes into our mind, he attacks our mind, and he deceives us in our mind. And we're warned about that in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. Read through that. He also comes as a false shepherd, an angel of light, but his intent is to deceive unto death. Read those scriptures, John and Corinthians. He influences our thoughts and snatches God's word what is, that is implanted into our minds if we don't first prepare our minds to hear and act upon the teaching. Read the parable in Matthew 13 where, where the Jesus is talking about the seed that falls on rocky ground or shallow ground or fertile ground and how we need to prepare the soil of our heart to hear the word of God. Because if we don't prepare our heart right, the enemy can come in and snatch away the truths of God. Everything you're learning right now, everything you're hearing in this church or by any other good teaching that you're under can be snatched away from you if you don't prepare prepare your heart. If you don't prepare the soil to hear the word, it can be all snatched away from you and it's of no value to you. So understand, the enemy has access to our mind. Three er Three major steps in the process of deception. Number one, he creates doubt 
first in our mind about God's true love and God's intention for us. That's what he did in Genesis chapter 3. He creates doubt that God really is concerned about you, that God really loves you, that God really has his best intent for you. He creates doubt. And with doubt then comes the acceptance of the next phase, which is denial. If you read in uh, Genesis chapter 3 again, you talk about how the devil then came and he, he made a blatant statement that God will not, or God does not. He, if, if, God, if Satan didn't first prep your mind with doubt about who God is and about God's greatness and about God's mercy and about God's love, then denial would be easy to, for you to fight against. He wouldn't come to you right now with a denial statement without first preceding it or preparing the soil, if you will, of your mind with doubt. So that when he brings doubt as to, is God really? Did God really say? Did he really say? And then once he gets you thinking about that, then he can bring the full-fledged uh, fledged denial of what God said. And now he has an opportunity to bring you fully into deception. So doubt, denial, deception. So when you start hearing things in your mind about, I don't really think God would do that. I, I don't think God really meant that. When you read the scriptures that says don't, and remember, what does don't mean? Say it again. Don't hurt yourself. When God says the don'ts in the word of God, he's not trying to take away your fun. He's trying to protect you from yourself. He's trying to help you not hurt yourself. So what the devil will do, he'll bring the doubt to the don't. And when the Lord says don't to God's word, the devil's right there with a the doubt. Well, why did God tell me not to do that? Because God doesn't want me to have fun. Because God wants me to be boring. Because God doesn't want me to have any friends. Because if I don't do something, my friends are going to call me funny names. Or they're, not, or they're going to abandon me. Or they're not going to I'm going to be left alone. Who are, where does that come from? Young people, where does that come from? Older people? It comes from the devil bringing doubt to your mind about the don'ts of God's word. And then comes denial. And then comes deception. All right, so he's deceiving us in our mind. Flip it over to the second page, if you would. The second major strategy is he becomes the destroyer. Satan's number one priority is to destroy God's creation. He can't destroy God because God's the creator, and Satan understands that much. So the next worst thing he can do is to destroy God's creation, and that's me and that's you. And Satan roams the earth looking for whom he may devour. Read 1 Peter 5.8. So Satan deceives us in our mind. And then he brings the destructive strategy or the destroyer mentality most of the time aimed at our physical bodies. He has authority granted him by God to have access to our bodies for two major reasons. Number one is the first one through testing and discipline, and those are always for our benefit. God does allow the enemy access to our body for a testing and discipline purposes. And then the second thing he brings it, or it has access to, is because we are free moral agents. God is giving us free choice. So God is saying, okay, whoever your name is, if you want to allow Satan in your life, 
You can. I'm not going to stop them. It's your choice. If you want to allow Satan to have a foothold in your, in your life, then hold on to your anger through the night. Then hold on and, be, and hold on to that grudge against that person. Because that gives the devil a foothold. So if you want to have Satan in your life, you can. God is giving him that authority. God has given the devil the authority to have access to your life based upon your choices. We're free people. We're free to do whatever we want, and there's a lot of joy and freedom, but there's also a lot of responsibility and freedom. And there's a lot of consequences come freedom. Because if I don't properly use my choices, the consequences of that freedom will come to my death and destruction. That's the natural occurrence of consequences. So number one, God does use, uh, he does give the enemy access to our life to test us and to discipline us. Look at point one, testing. God may allow him to have access as a means of testing. Job was a good example how God allowed Satan to access Job to test Job's perseverance. He also allowed Satan to sift Peter, as in Luke, that the devil wanted to sift Peter and wanted to test Peter's perseverance and his love for Christ. And there's multiple other examples in the Word as well that God has given um, Satan opportunity to test people. Also, he can use it for discipline purposes. Understand how important discipline is. Parents, we know how important discipline is to children. If I love my children, I was just talking to Drew about it earlier today, actually, before church, how important discipline is. If I really love my child, I will discipline my child. I may not want to because it may be painful, it may be hard, but if I really loved my child, I'll discipline them. God really loves us, and he disciplines us. And sometimes he uses a devil in that plan. But the devil will take that, though, and understand his perspective of that. His perspective is to come against you and say, God's a mean God. God doesn't like you anymore. Look what's happening to you. And that's the devil's perspective of God's discipline. That's not godly perspective. That's the devil's way. The devil wants to use it and, and make God to be, to be a, a mean God and, a, and a, a hard God. But God's saying, you know what? Sometimes I need to get your attention. And sometimes I need to get you on your flat in your back with a bad back or whatever problem you have, because then maybe you'll listen to me a little bit. So understand what that happens, and, and look for God's discipline, and look for his love in the process of that. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, what people see. And our treatment of our body and our actions through the use of our bodies becomes our testimony to the world. If I abuse my body, or if I use my body to do evil things, that's what people see. So if I'm going to claim to be a Christian person, and then go out and abuse my body or use my body for sinful activities, I'm becoming a hypocrite and I'm becoming a stumbling block to those that are out there that think, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you did Christian things. So why are you doing these things? See, that's what the world sees is our body. They see our actions. The devil wants us to make us poor stewards of our body. He wants us to feel discouraged and evil towards our body. And he wants to use our bodies as, as tools of unrighteousness, as a means of destroying me as my spiritual man and those around me. And I invite you to go read every one of these scriptures to make sure that I'm speaking correctly. 
Number three, Satan is the ruler. Satan has a legitimate claim on this world, meaning he has the right to influence the culture, the political structure, the economy, and the overall attitudes of the world we live in. He is the ruler of the air. He is the ruler and the prince of this world. And he's given authority to do that. So as a ruler of this world, we are instructed to keep ourselves away from him, away from being polluted and tainted by his influence in our lives, even as we continue to live in the world. Jesus prayed for all the believers, as given in John, that God would not take us out of the world, but to protect us in the process of living in the world, to protect us from the evil one. But yet we're to remain in the world, and that's where Satan likes to get after us a little bit. And as the ruler, Satan uses strategies to bring false teaching through us. We're getting ready to turn the page. He brings false teaching through blatant untruths as effective in cults and major religions. So he brings us right out untruth teaching. And there's a lot of cults that are out there that are just not even begin to close to godly teaching. But people fall for it. And then he also brings us, and this is probably where we're more, I don't want to spend a lot of time with those cults because I don't think we're really affected by them here. But what we are affected by is point B, and that is hollow and deceptive teachings that are very close to the truth but lack in the saving grace of Christ and in Christ alone. And go to Colossians 2.8. That's where we are constantly have to be on guard because there's a lot of good things that we think we're doing by softening the gospel. There's a lot of ways that we think we're helping God. We're helping the Holy Spirit by let's not talk so hard about some things. Let's be more accepting of some things. Let's, let's let people do what they want to do and not tell them what the Word says because when we do that, we'll have more people come into our church. You know what that's called? Hollow and deceptive teachings. And we're very susceptible to that if we allow ourselves to be that way. And the devil wants to make sure that he can use that whenever he can for us. The second area of rulership is that he deceives us into thinking that we are the rightful rulers of our life. I am the king. (laughs) I am the king of my life. And no one is going to tell me what to do. No one has the right to tell me how to live. Who do they think they are? They're a man just like I am. And no man is going to tell me how to live. And by the way, neither is God. That is what Satan wants us to do. He wants to become the ruler. He wants to deceive us into telling us that we are the boss. We are the ruler of our life. The Christian life is a matter of the will. God has given us the power of making choices, but that doesn't make me the ruler. He's given me the power to choose, but that doesn't make me the ruler The ruler makes the rules. God is the ruler. He's the creator. We read about it already. He is the creator. He has the right. He has the ability to make the rules. I, as a creation, I am not the ruler. 
I have free choices, though. My choice is, who am I going to follow? Am I going to follow the creator? Am I going to follow the rule maker? Or am I going to follow the rule deceiver, the rule bender, the rule twister? And that would be, the Satan. That would be Satan. Read Proverbs. Read Jeremiah. We're called to be a holy priesthood, a holy nation, set apart and belonging to God. Read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We're talking about that in our Wednesday night class as well. And here's, I think, the uh, point C is, I think, a really important one. Because Satan has rightful influence of evil in this world, it's it's even more important that we live a life that identifies us with lining up with God's authority, not with Satan's in this world. And now what I mean by this is this. I have right to do a lot of things. And I'm... I'm going to pick on drinking for the moment because I haven't talked about it in a long time. I have a right to drink. I want to drink. And that beer isn't necessarily going to send me to hell. But let's look at what that beer influence is from. Let's look at where it's taken me down the road to. What am I, who am I identifying with when I drink a beer in today's culture? Some would say, well, Jesus drank wine. Okay, Jesus drank wine. But he drank wine in a culture that it was hard to keep things from fermenting. They didn't have a fresh water supply. It was part of their culture. It wasn't drank. It wasn't drunken. They didn't drink it to get drunk. They didn't drink it to be part of the culture they were in, part of the party culture. Today, let's look at what it is. Look at the Bud Light commercials. Look at, this, look at all the influence of alcohol today. We don't need alcohol to live today. I can keep my water, I can keep my grape juice unfermented. I can process it, I can freeze it, I can keep it cool. There's no reason I have to drink it. So when I choose to drink it, what am I doing? I'm lining myself up with the culture of the world. Now, some will disagree with me, and you have that right to disagree, but that's my opinion. I'm lining myself up with the culture of the world when I choose to drink. What I'm really saying is, how close can I live to the world and still be a Christian? How close can I be to the worldly culture and still be with my friends and hang with my friends and not have to say, no, I don't drink, and still be called a Christian? That's like, I want to date you, I want to marry you, And so I want to get engaged to you, and I want to do whatever thing I'm pleased to you, but do you mind if I date this girl over here while we're engaged? Do you mind? How close can I get to this girl over here? But I want to marry you, but how close can I get to this girl over here? See, that's kind of what you're doing when you're playing with worldly influences. Anything else, maybe it's sex, maybe it's anything else in the world brings. It's not just drinking. It can become dirty language. It can be foul jokes. It can become gambling. It can be lots of sins that line us up with the influence of the world. And all we're really saying is, Father, I want to come to heaven and see you, but, you know, until I get there, can I play over here? Hollow and deceptive teachings. The only way to protect ourselves from this ruler mentality is to surrender everything about yourself to God. Two big words, surrender everything. Surrender. 
Give 100% of yourself into God's authority and to submit to his will, not your own. See, when we're saved, we said, I will. When I become saved, I have to say, I ask for forgiveness. I give up my sin. But in all reality, that's the last time as a Christian you should use the word, I will. From then on, it should be, thy will, God. I will in my life to become saved. Then after that, if I want to grow in Christianity, that's why people fall away. That's why they start strong and don't last, because they don't understand what thy will means. Thy will be done in my life. I'll put away my old self, but thy will be done. Everything. Everything means everything. (laughs) Everything doesn't mean some things. Everything means everything. Is there any question? How can we say we surrender if we're not surrendering everything? If we're holding something back, then we really aren't surrendering. We're only playing a game of make-believe, and that's the game that Satan wants us to play because he'll win that game. Partial truths are partial lies. Partial confessions results in partial forgiveness at best. Let me say that again. That's important. Partial truths are partial lies. Partial confession is partial forgiveness, if that even exists. Read the, read the, read the verses. If I tell God that I'm asking for forgiveness... Am I only asking for a portion, or am I asking for forgiveness of everything? And I need to be honest with everything. Let's skip down to verse or chapter or the fourth one of the accuser, because time is slipping by. The accuser. The accuser is Satan, and he is the accuser of the brethren. And he doesn't care if he accuses us with factual information or lies. He will bring accusation to us and to God in any way he can to bring us down to his evil. And Satan's accusing spirit really wraps all these together. So we're finally on the last page. His major purpose is to break our relationship with God. His major purpose is to break our relationship with God. This is where God doesn't like religion. God wants relationship. Accusing spirits bring a break in our relationship with God and with each other. And I'm not going to go through all four of these because we don't have time. You can read these on your own, but accusing God, he attacks us in four areas, accusing humans to God, accusing God to humans, accusing believers to each other, accusing me to myself. I really encourage you to go and spend some time and and let the Lord work with you on these areas. Read the scripture. As we stated at the beginning of the sermon, we are in a warfare with Satan and his demons. And we don't like to talk about it, but if we don't see it for the serious nature that it is, you're going to have a, you're going to have a problem in your life. If you don't see it for what it is, you're going to have a problem. There's a continual fine line that we walk every day, and that is that we see the ugliness of our sin for what it is, with the saving grace of Jesus' forgiveness. We have to recognize the sin as sin. Otherwise, we have, how, how can we ask for forgiveness for it? If I cover it up, if I whitewash it, then I'm not asking for forgiveness for it. 
honesty, we can become really self-righteous in our life. We can make friends with our sin. We can do lots of things to justify who we are. And finally, it's not our perfection that saves us. It's Christ that was crucified. It's not about how good I can live. It's about how, how forgiven I can live. How often I can go to the cross and say, Father, I failed again. Father, I failed again. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Come with a King David heart, a quick heart to repent. And not just confess, but repent. Take the next step, turn the direction, and go the other direction. As the ushers are prepared, we want to take communion this morning. And this is a great time for us to take some time and to, to examine our hearts this morning. Examine our hearts, and that is, where am I? Where am I with this area of confession and repentance in my life? Am I just confessing, or am I really, really repenting? Thank you, Father, for your mercies and your grace. Thank you, Father, for what you've done on the cross for us. Thank you, Father, for your, sal your salvation. Thank you, Father, for your forgiveness. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that now you would just let this truth settle in our hearts and in our minds. Father, we will worship you. As we sang this morning, I will worship you. I will give my life for you. I will accept your free salvation experience. I will accept it. I will accept your mercies and your grace in my life. And I thank you for it every day. Every day I thank you for that mercy and that grace. Unmerited favor, unmerited mercy. We thank you for that. Thank you, Jesus. Father, now as you go throughout this day today, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, be with us. Help us to understand how much you love us, how much to, that you care for us, and how you are going to keep us. You are going to keep us to the day. Father, for what you began, you will, keep, you will finish the task till the end where we see you in heaven, Father. In Jesus' name.